Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. is that, that obviously anxiety is an important emotion because it's designed to keep us safe and if we didn't have anxiety then you know we could get into dangerous situations the difficulty is though is when we become anxious and fearful about things where there isn't actually uh, much of a much of a danger that we you know we walk into a room full of people and we we're just worried they're going to judge us badly and think us foolish or we're going to humiliate ourselves or embarrass ourselves it's those sorts of thoughts that are inaccurate that's when anxiety is a problem and the key thing really is to not get caught up in these thoughts so much, to in fact test them out, to not avoid these situations, but go into them and learn actually things are okay. And really often I think one of the best things to do is to to think about where we're placing our attention. If we walk into that room full of other people at a party or a social gathering and we're thinking about, oh, how am I going to come across? Are things going to go wrong? If we do that, we're all focused on the bad stuff. What we really want to do in these situations is walk into that room thinking about the opportunities and the positive stuff, about, you know, the nice people we might meet or the conversations or the things of interest. And once we've focused on our minds on what actually could go well in a situation, once we do that, we're often then just, we don't even notice the bad stuff anymore. We focus much more on the positive and are engaged. And, you know, often the times we're happiest is when we're not thinking about ourselves, but we're engaged in a conversation or in a moment or activity. That's often when we're happiest. If we can get that trick of where we focus our attention, I think that's probably the most important thing. Are mental health problems more common in women than men? And has the importance of sleep been overlooked in the treatment of psychological problems? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to look at the impact of workplace stress on men and women and ask, are there differences? Professor Daniel Freeman discusses which mental health problems are more common in men and which are seen more often in women. And how difficult is it to find your personal truth? Award-winning British novelist Tessa Hadley discusses the power of memory and the impact of sibling rivalries on family life and marriage, as teased out in her latest novel, The Past. This is a show about gender and anxiety, addiction and insight, family tensions, social pressures, and finding your place in the world. But first, how difficult is it to put life on the page? In a recent interview, British novelist Tessa Hadley said, I really enjoy inhabiting a male perspective. I want to write as clever as a man, and it was liberating to do so. Tessa Hadley has written five novels and two collections of short stories. Her books include The London Train, Clever Girl, Accidents in the Home, Everything Will Be Alright and Married Love. Tessa is also Professor of Creative Writing at Bath Spa University. Well, this summer I had the pleasure of meeting up with Tessa at the West Cork Literary Festival. Hello, I'm Tessa Hadley. I'm here at the West Cork Literary Festival. I'm teaching a workshop on the short story and I've also just done a reading from my new novel which will be out on the 3rd of September and which is called The Past. And the whole of the novel is centred on a house or in a house. And here is Roland, who is one brother with three sisters and the whole novel centres around these siblings. Here he is arriving at the house and it gives us a chance to have a look at it. Roland and his seraglio, as Alice called them, though not to his face, 
arrived at Kingdom at lunchtime. He drove an old Jaguar XJ6 with all the original bathe leather upholstery. His new wife, Pilar, Argentinian and a lawyer, was beside him in the passenger seat. She had passed the journey, reading through papers, replacing one file every so often in her briefcase and pulling out another. Sixteen-year-old Molly had been stretched along the back seat, either asleep or playing with her iPhone, and every so often she had asked how far it was now, just as she had done when she was six. They pulled up on the cobbles beside the outhouses. All the noise and forward thrust of travel faded and receded. The engine clicked secretively as it cooled, and when he stood up out of the car, Roland experienced the scene for a moment as archetypally English as if he saw it through Pilar's foreign eyes, the simple white house with its arched window, the surging pillar-like trunks of the great beech trees with their canopies of sombre bronze green, the dancing silver birch, the old church sunk in its graveyard, the white doves in the stone dovecot belonging to the barn conversion opposite. Tessa, you said something very interesting at your workshop. You said houses are novel-shaped and they're almost a metaphor. Yes, because that's sort of how I think metaphors work. I don't think they're an add-on to ordinary life that writers use and nobody else uses. I actually think the shape of our perceptions is metaphoric. So if you live in a house, it's laden with meaning for you that is not reducible to its bricks and mortar and its layout. It, It becomes saturated with the things that have happened there, the feelings you have about the different places, the different people who've been there, um, the things you love about the house and the places you've been happy or unhappy. So a house is a living metaphor. Therefore, novelists love them. And they have groups of people in subdivided into different rooms. So actually, structurally, they're even like novels because that's like, you know, a novel collects together a group of people, puts them in one space inside a book and has them in different chapters and different sections. Now, your latest novel, The Past, lifts the structure almost of an Elizabeth Bowen novel. Would that be fair to say? Yes, I do acknowledge that explicitly in my afterword, though really that's, I, I'm not sure I had to. It's, it's a simple thing. The structure of my book is the present, then I drop back into the past, then I come forward into the present. And that's very literally what Elizabeth Bowen does in The House in Paris, one of her very best novels. And we both of us, you know, we say the present, the past, the present is written on the page. Uh, I haven't borrowed anything else explicitly from her in this novel, but she's one of the writers I go to all the time without ceasing. Every week, almost every day, I'm looking at bits of her prose when I need to refresh my sense of how you know what to aspire to mm-hmm. because i i love her sentences her perceptions her bravado her her wonderful lyricism and wit now you have four siblings going back to the family home or the family holiday home and there's a rather intriguing storyline set between two of the women harriet and pilar can you tell me about it because you did a reading today and i noticed people in their seats some of the attendees kind of leapt up sort of it was provocative certainly say the least okay what happens is that the the oldest of the four siblings is harriet and she's quite a an inhibited and dry and reticent Mm. person dutiful and good and quiet she has no children. She does have a relationship with a man, but it, it's, it's not a very exciting one. He remains off stage throughout the novel. And what happens is the most peculiar thing. Her brother comes as part of this family gathering in the house, and he brings with him his new wife, his third wife, actually, 
who's really not much like their family. She's rather dynamic, very beautiful, rather forceful, probably a little bit right-wing, um, and, and she's Argentinian. And the family don't think they're going to get on with her all that well. And on the first night, when Harriet goes into her bedroom in the dark, she quickly realizes that the door is open between her bedroom and her brother's bedroom. And as she crosses quietly to close it, she realizes that she can hear them making love. Actually, she can see them making love. She sees a reflection of them. Difficult to make out what exactly she's seeing, but something in the mirror. And, you know, that, that's the kind of embarrassing thing that happens. But what happens is most strange in that this, she doesn't shut the door at once. She stands there. She actually sort of eavesdrops in horror at herself, but galvanized by this eavesdropping. It's as if some, something smites her, like she's channeling lightning down, and it changes her, and, and she is catastrophically changed then by that experience for the rest of the book. I, I suppose, you, to, to put it in very simple terms, you could say she falls in love with this woman, her brother's new wife, but, but that that begs more questions than it answers. Mm. It's, it's a stranger kind of being smitten than the ordinary falling in love. Do you think it's a form of truth, maybe, that she's found? Oh, that's a complicated question. Is it a <laughs> form of truth? Um, yes, I tend to think that what erupts mm. out of us mm. against our will must have truth in it, mm. mustn't it? Otherwise, mm. we, we could easily mm. conquer it. We could mm. easily overcome it. Whether those are good truths or helpful truths, I, I don't know whether this does her any good at all, mm. what happens. It's very painful. It's very devastating for her. Um, but is it a truth? It's a truth about something that's been locked away inside her. She thought she had that side of life sorted out. She wasn't very interested in it, actually. She hasn't been a very sexual woman at all. It's not been very important for her. That's what she mm. thought. Mm. And this is like a revelation of something hidden, erupting. Um, yeah, it's a truth. I suppose she's revisiting her past, but you think some of those dramatic experiences just catch us so much by surprise that we're so we're forced we've no way out that we can't escape the truth of who and what we are yes i do think that happens and and it and as i say it's often very dangerous when that happens because it unleashes forces and feelings that that can be very destructive and can't go anywhere they're not very helpful i'm, I'm quite a believer in a degree of repression as freud was of course um you know in order to manage ourselves and our lives we have to keep a lid on things that's a bowen phrase by the way keeping life with the lid on that's what she liked to write about she said um so yeah it, it is something's been repressed in her and then it breaks out and it's very devastating but of course to, to put it very cynically for the writer this mm. is riches mm. for the human being mm. it's possibly bad news although i don't know do we all feel mm. like is it othello you know um better to have lived and loved than never to have lived at all i, I doubt myself whether it's othello as i say it, but i think it is um so mm. it is that what we all feel maybe, maybe she would rather have been seared by this terrible experience than not to have had it. One, one wants to know the truth about oneself. Well, not everybody does, but she would. She would somewhere want to know that she had that in her. How difficult is it for you, Tessa, to just find that authenticity in, in, in writing and bring the reader into these family dramas, these domestic situations, but actually bring the truth out within that, the, the universals within all of that? Uh, writing is hard, or 
writing truthfully is hard. Mm. Anyway, the, the work of writing, I suppose part of it is to fight off all the shortcuts and cliches mm. of language which intervene mm. across our perceptions, mm. preventing us from really seeing. Mm. But, but if you believe in language, you also believe that if you find the right word, if you struggle for the right word and the right sentence and the right metaphor and, and the right concrete, the words for a concrete thing, then you will make something happen on the page that, that is truthful. Mm. But, but actually, words are lazy. So if you don't fight, mm. you will have something that isn't the truth. Mm. A second-hand thing will mm. write itself. Otherwise, everybody mm. could do it. I mean, you know, mm. it's mm. difficult. It's as difficult. It's like saying it's more obvious with painting. If you say to a painter, have this paint, mm. here's a canvas. Now, put those flowers mm. on the canvas. Mm. The, the amount of work mm. and training and mm. experience that needs to go into making one flower look like a flower, mm. we understand mm. that. But because everybody uses language, we, we, we don't sometimes quite attend to the unnaturalness, mm. I suppose you could almost say, of, of the work that writers mm. do, trying to find mm. the true words to show the thing as we see it or as we imagine it. And you think the likes of Henry James, let's say, I know you did a PhD in him, got it right, did it the best. Do you think that there are some masters out there, master craftsmen, and that we all will aspire to read or to write like them? Uh, yes, I do, more or less. Mm. I, I don't think many people mm. are given a big gift. There are all kinds of gifts, and, mm. and there, are mm. all ki there are lovely kinds of mm. truthfulness mm. which are not on the Henry James mm. scale, if you like, mm. and who, want, who wants to be weighing one mm. thing against another. Yeah. Some people have one beautiful book in them or, mm. or a memoir or, or something and, yeah. and some and some people have quite a an, uh, how shall I put it that some people have quite a natural mm. truthfulness which will not become a great sort of fiction habit but they mm. might have the one memoir the, the one mm. story to tell a contemporary writer working now will be endlessly revisiting the great classics of a, a hundred years ago and more mm. But it's interesting, they go into the mulch of who we are and how we think. But I think you, you need to learn more immediately from people who are more contemporary. Mm. There's a sort of funny window, which I would say was 60 or mm. 70 years. And the people within that window feel like you're contemporaries and you are, you're learning from them in a very direct mm. way. Whereas is one, when you're reading Jane Eyre, you're not thinking, oh, I could mm. do that, or, or that's a way of doing things. That, that feels past mm. in in some sense not not past as a reading experience it's utterly alive but but as a a guide book for contemporary writers it's it's perhaps less helpful and who today do you think is creating the creating these make-believe worlds in a very real way the illusion that what's on the page actually happened well of course in the 20th century a great big different mm. kind of a different mm. way of thinking about writing did open up when writers became very skeptical of mm. that illusionism mm. of realism mm. if you like because um, beginning with James Joyce mm. I suppose mm. saying you know that 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 illusionism is a kind of trickery mm. and we could we could we could do other mm. kinds of writing mm. we could we could put life on the page in a different way mm. that didn't I'm, I'm not sure Joyce is the best example for this because people always think he's he is a great mm. experimental novelist, but I'm not sure that he isn't also a, a superb realist, mm -hmm. who, who, an ultra-realist, so, so illusionistic mm. that we will get 
every grain of detail in one moment mm. taking place on a street mm. in Dublin. So maybe Joyce isn't the best example, but a writer like Beckett, say, mm. um, you know, he is not trying to make you cross a threshold and believe mm. you're in a house and that these people are alive mm. and they're doing these mm. things. He would rather despise, mm. I think, that activity in writing. And, and the 20th century has got very, very involved with that and some, some wonderful writers have come out of it and equally some very tired, so say, illusionistic realism mm. gets written, which is flat and mm. dreary. But I do feel now we're, you know, well into the 21st century. Truth is that fiction writing and illusionism, making the reader believe mm. its life, are, mm. they are making a recovery. They are alive and well. Mm. It is what most mm. readers mm. want and will do Whatever writers mm. try and do to deter them, mm. they will invest mm. a kind of other life in these made-up people in made-up places doing made-up things. This afternoon at your workshop, I looked around and it was predominantly female. But why do you think it is that women feel or women engage mm. in exploring the voice in some way, certainly at these types of workshop events? Um, partly I would think it's because more women have more time. Uh, that's a simple mm. economical, sociological mm. answer. I think women are more self-doubting, therefore more more willing, more, more eager to apprentice themselves in a very overt way. However good they think they are, they are very comfortable with playing the role of a student. Mm. Whereas men are less comfortable if they mm. think they're going to be good writers at playing that role mm. of a student and taking it from anybody else. Mm. But that doesn't mean to say, I mean, a, a third of our students on our Bath Spa MA course, I, I'm sure mm. are men, I think it's mm. something like that, I'm not quite sure. Now, can I ask you, you said before, um, you said before that writing should make you slightly anxious or if not even ashamed. That's an extraordinary statement. Yes. Um, it should certainly make you anxious because what are you doing? You are you're taking on yourself mm. an authority, actually. That's what you have to do before you can do anything any good. Mm. And that's, that's part of teaching is sort of helping people mm. to, to feel their own authority as mm. writers because mm. you are taking on the authority to say how something is, to mm. say how something happened and what it felt like and what it meant. Um, that's that's a big mm. move. Mm. It's it's mm. a it's a move of power in mm. a sense. So I think anybody should be anxious when they ever make any move of power mm. in art. Mm. And as for shame, yes, you should be feeling as well that there is life out there full of its griefs and abuses and delights mm. and complexities and that puny you are <laughs> aiming and claiming mm. to speak to it mm. and you should feel a, a wince of shame and a sense that you might not be adequate mm. will serve you very well as a writer and I, I also I know about that shame because I would say in any given writing group it's the ones who say I dare not that this is terrible. How can I say that that's what happened? How can I write about that subject? They will be the good writers because mm. they are uneasy mm. in pronouncing and that is intelligent and perceptive and writerly. Last question. Is all writing in some way um, revisiting the past? Is it all about remembrance? Is it all about unpacking memory in some way and learning from it? In the 
group I've been teaching here at Bantry, I've, the very thing we started off with was a piece by Milan Kundera about memory and forgetting, and he says that actually life is forgetting all the time. Every instant we are losing what was in the instant before. We, we hold none of the concreteness of anything that happens to us in a given day, not even for 10 minutes or half an hour. And that what writing does is to claim and appear to restore the past. So I do, I think, I haven't even begun to think deeply enough about the mystery of the past and the time that lies behind us, but I feel very sure that writing exists in an extraordinarily vital relationship with our past, our personal past and our historical past and our ancestral past. I think it's what our culture does for ancestor worship. It's very important. That was British novelist Tessa Hadley. The Past is published by Random House and retails for in around 14 euros. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Do you suffer from low-level anxiety? Do you have problems sleeping? And when you wake up in the morning, do you experience a sense of frustration, anger, fear or dread? Look, you're not alone. And while most of us would rather clean a toilet or cut the grass than discuss our personal problems, every day hundreds of people around Ireland and millions across the world struggle with psychological and emotional problems. Now, while for some, their symptoms are manageable, friends, colleagues and family members may have no idea of their personal struggles. Others, well, the implications can be devastating and highly debilitating. 
Well, my next guest has a very interesting point to make, and I think his message is relevant to both men and women, no matter what you're doing or how you're doing it. Dr. Daniel Freeman is Professor of Clinical Psychology at the Department of Psychiatry at University College Oxford. Daniel's books include Overcoming Paranoia and Suspicious Thoughts, Anxiety, A Very Short Introduction, and How to Keep Calm and Carry On, Inspiring Ways to Worry Less and Live a Happier Life. Well, Daniel's latest book, The Stress Sex, Uncovering the Truth About Men, Women and Mental Health, has just been published by Oxford University Press and is co-authored with his brother Jason. In The Stress Sex, Daniel writes, Broadly speaking, the evidence suggests that men experience more work-related problems. Women's stresses tend to revolve around relationships, and this pattern is reproduced when it comes to sensitivity to depression. Job stuff seems to affect men more acutely than it does women, and the situation is reversed when it comes to interpersonal problems. All of which seems like a plausible reflection of current gender roles and expectations. Well, I had a very revealing chat with Daniel over the weekend. I started off with a big wide open question. Are women bearing the brunt of mental health problems in the world today? I think it's a great question and I don't think there's been anywhere near enough research on it. But the analysis that I conducted suggests that, in fact, it is the case that women are experiencing significantly greater rates of mental health problems than men in the current environment. And I think this is a major public health issue that's, that's being neglected. So essentially you're, you're putting forth that maybe women have more problems with anxiety, sleep disorders like insomnia, uh, low level anxiety, that type of thing, that women have a, they're more predisposed to these types of challenges. What I think is, well, well firstly, that, that mental health commons, I must say, are very common in men and women. So they're not anywhere near exclusively a female problem. But there's definitely a very clear pattern within the genders uh, for types of mental health experiences. So women are more likely to have problems of depression and anxiety and eating disorders and sleep problems and sexual problems than men, what we call kind of internalizing problems. Men, on the other hand, are much more likely to have problems uh, with things like alcohol and substance misuse, what we call externalizing problems. So there's a very distinct pattern there, but what I think is that they don't balance out. Women's greater rates of the internalizing problems are not balanced out by men's greater rates of externalizing problems, that in the current environment, we've got women suffering perhaps 20 to 40% higher rates of mental health problems than men. The problems where the greater discrepancies occur are for the problems where we know it's the environment, the social environment that has the greatest causal role in it. I found that very interesting that women tend to suffer more from internal mental health problems and men the more external, that men are more prone to taking risks in their life, they're more prone to anger and violence or Mm. alcohol addictions, whereas women have maybe a little bit more of low self-esteem challenges and that type of thing. I think you've got it. I think that's the real key issue is that there's a whole range of pressures on women that are affecting their self-esteem, their self-concept, that they've often got multiple roles, such as being you know, a carer and you know, looking after people, whilst they're sometimes breadwinning, or whilst having to sort of be in the idealised shape and, and weight, all these pressures, and, and, and also in their roles, having less reward and less control, being less valued in, in many instances. I think all that takes a very understandable knock-on self-esteem. And when, you've, when your self-esteem takes a hit, 
then uh, there could be a whole load of uh, emotional and psychological consequences from that. So that's very understandable. Now, you could look at what you've done and say that, but that you've interpreted the data in a certain way and maybe that the data doesn't give us the full picture. Because if I look at my broad range of friends, certainly my female friends go to the doctor more. They talk about mental health issues more. They would certainly find it easier to say, you know, if they had some form of type of panic attack or something. Whether it's guys that I know are a little bit more reluctant to come out with all of that stuff. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think that's such true. Sort of, so uh, wild horses wouldn't drag many men to admit problems or go and see help for them, physical or, or mental health problems. The data we looked at, though, are not about who comes to treatment because there are very clear biases there. These are from national epidemiological studies where random proportions of the general population are interviewed in their own homes. So it's not just about those seeking help. So that does reduce that kind of bias. But you're right, there probably is some underreporting going on that explains some of the difference. It hasn't been studied enough as it should. So one study, what it did is got men and women to rate how fearful they were of a variety of situations. And and in that survey, women reported many more fears than men. But they brought the same people in a bit later to the lab and said, this time we're going to ask you about your fears, but show you recordings of them and measure your physiology and see how accurate you were. And in that study, it was only the men who increased their fear rating. So they had been underreporting. But even under those conditions, women were still reporting more fears than men. So I think underreporting does play a part of it, and it's very hard to know to what level is about something that people aren't willing to admit, perhaps even to themselves. However, on the other hand, there are a range of social factors that we would very much expect, because they impinge differently on men and women, to lead to differing rates. And the most stark example of that, of course, is that women are more likely to be the victims of sexual abuse. And that has very understandable negative consequences on mental health. So there's a range of factors why we think that we we should expect to see a difference. But you're right, the underreporting by men uh, may explain part of it. Now, one of the things I found very interesting, and I would agree with you to a certain degree, would be on interpersonal dependence and how it's higher amongst women. So how women are, where they're getting their value from and whether it's friendships or different social personal relationships, Mm. that they can't control that. And if anything goes a little askew in those relationships, that can really bring a woman down. Whether as men don't get their self-esteem from their male friends or work colleagues. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's right. Our self-esteem, I mean, all of us are vulnerable to, to, to hits on our self-esteem. But there is evidence that the hits on the self-esteem are a little bit more different for men and women. We're talking about generalizations here, but on the whole, women do have more invested in relationships, which leaves them a little more vulnerable to, to the actions of those around them. Men are often more invested in, in sort of achievement oriented. But of course, you know, problems can happen there too. But women in particular have, you know, self-esteem hits that come particularly about relationships, but also more from, from body image as well. Those two ones are the, some of the key things. And they're also it's also linked to particular psychological processes that, that, that women do a bit more than men, one of which is worrying ruminates. So women do that more than men, and that leads to problems. And also women are a bit more likely to blame themselves when things go wrong, when bad things happen, uh, than men. So there's a bit of a bias in how things are interpreted as well, and, and that, that, that affects people's mental health as well. But you could look at it also, Daniel, that, you know, a lot of women have feel an unbelievably overwhelming pressure to be a good mother. Then, you know, be a breadwinner and be the perfect lover, the perfect wife. So they're juggling so much and criticising themselves for so much as well. Yeah, I think that's right. 
I mean, obviously, having multiple roles can create huge amounts of pressures. On the other hand, of course, for many people, that provides variety and stimulation. The key thing really is for all of us is that when we do something, do we have a sense of control? Are we valued for it? Are we rewarded? And on the whole, women's, you know, the work in the home is often undervalued, but also in the workplace itself, uh, they're often paid less and find it harder to advance. So there's discrimination going on, and that's going to have such an effect on, on how people feel about themselves. Do you think men deal with workplace stress better than women? There's a question. Um, no, I mean, I think the issue is that women are often facing greater difficulties because, for example, they're being you know, paid less or being advanced less often. There's an interesting story that we quote in the book that shows that, striking really, that, that as men put on weight throughout their career, they end up getting paid more. But as women put on weight throughout their career, they actually get paid less. So these are sort of some of the social pressures that they face in the workplace that, that, that are unique and much more difficult. How problematic is anger in today's world? Well, um, you know, anger, anger is a problem, I think. You're, you're, you're right. And in the workplace, in the home, it can be a terribly corrosive type of emotion. You know, lots of us know, I think, a bit more about things like depression, anxiety, but anger as emotion is probably a little bit more overlooked, but it can be terribly destructive. Insomnia, if I was to look around broadly at my female friends, all my female friends complain of that they can't sleep at night or they're busy, their heads, they have the same stuff running around their head the whole time and they just can't feel calm at night. Why is that? Yeah, well, I mean, the problem is sleep is, is, is overlooked, you know, everywhere. I think it's so vital. We spend, you know, a third of our lives in sleep. But you're absolutely right. Rates of insomnia are at least double in women than men, and that's partly linked to the, to, to the worry that, that you mentioned. In effect, it's a sign of being hyper-aroused, hyper-alert. So if women are more likely to adopt a worrying style, have learned to use a style of rumination, that's going to keep them more alert and it's going to make it more difficult to go to sleep at night. But you're right, I think not being able to sleep, we all know, has such effects for our, for our daytime functioning. Um, and for all our mental health, the importance of sleep has been far too much overlooked, I think. Now, loneliness, Daniel, is there much of a difference between how men and women cope with loneliness from your research or how they adapt to lonely times in their lives? That's a very good question. Um, I'm not sure we cover that particularly in the book. Um, I mean, Can you infer from well, some of well, the other well, stuff? What you can infer, I, I, I think, is that it's probably a problem that's more likely to, well, to affect men a little bit more and that they may find it a little bit more difficult to negotiate uh, reconnecting. You know, there is sometimes an issue for men to be seen to be uh, you know, not seeking help from others, not needing help from others, taking advice from others and being more independent. And of course, I think that can have uh, difficulties in, in, in learning to cope because all of us in our lives at times, you know, need, need the support of other people around us. Do you think if we were living in a more equal society in terms of gender equality, do you think we would have the same reporting here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's some evidence, certainly, that the societies that are more equal between the genders, there's less discrepancy in these conditions. But there are still differences in the overall patterns. It does seem to be still, even in those societies, that, that, that women are more likely to have anxiety, depression, and men more of the alcohol and drug problems. So there's interesting issues about why that may be. But certainly the more equal society is, the lower we'd expect the discrepancy in rates of, of mental health problems to be between, between men and women. And what about the treatment of mental health? 
because by the fact that women tend to report mental health problems to their doctors, Mm. would that mean that possibly women, there's more women medicating or self-medicating themselves? Yes, so that's right. There'd be more women coming to attention in mental health services and more often than not, medications will be given for these sorts of problems, which would mean they'll be taking uh, more of these medications. I mean, there are also psychological treatments such as cognitive behaviour therapy, CBT, that work extremely well for problems of anxiety and depression, and there is recognition of the, of the need to increase the availability of those sorts of very evidence-based and strong interventions as well. How are we going to all become more calm, Daniel? When I was reading through the book over the weekend, it struck me that Life is becoming more intense. Our day-to-day life is becoming more intense. We're so connected to the internet, to Facebook, to, you know, all sorts of different mobile devices and so on. And that we're working longer hours. And I'm wondering, is there a way that we can learn to maybe live a lot calmer, quieter lives maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think equally those those technologies uh, enable us to learn more and to connect with others as well and activities. But I think one of the things, and I think there has been improvements over this in the last 10, 20 years, is people are much more aware about their mental health, but also think a bit more about what makes them happier. And that's a good area to reflect upon and to have some strategies, really. And there are things that we can do. I mean, there are, you know, we should be having a number of sort of healthy elements in our week that are good for our psychological health and things such as connecting with others and not getting isolated, helping others is a good thing, making sure we've got learning going on, that we perhaps cut down on the level of negative rumination, that we get less caught up in all our negative thoughts and spend time more focused on doing the things that make us feel feel good and connected and, and meaningful. So there is a, there's far more knowledge now about the things that are good for us and I think that can filter down and I think you know there's many opportunities for all of us. So there is room for improvements in our psychological health and I think also there's awareness that, you know, also at a national level, there are things that facilitate, you know, better overall health of the population and we should be encouraging those things. Does religion play a part in any of this? Well, what we do know is that people feel happier and healthier when they have connections and meaningfulness in their life and that can come from a number of areas and so for some people I think religion is important at connecting to other people and giving a sense of purpose it's not the only way of achieving that but it's certainly for many people helpful. So what would you advise now for anyone who feels quite beaten down or their nerves are very edgy or they feel quite overwhelmed? Yeah well there's 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 a number of things I mean, it's always good if you can to to check these things out with a trusted family member or friend to to check out your thoughts. All too often we have unsettling thoughts that we just think about in our head, but we don't actually share and check out with others. So that's always a good step. I think it's also important to make sure that we're sleeping well, that we've got ways to manage our worries, that we're doing positive activities and connecting with other people, including also doing, you know, exercise and sport and, and hobbies and activities. But of course, if we are finding ourselves getting you know particularly upset or distressed you know it's worth having a chat with a gp for example about it to see whether you need a bit more help there's also you know information on the internet and books that can help give people a first step to sort of making changes for the better and what about everyday fear and paranoia some days things can become quite intense compared to others yeah what we find is that, that obviously anxiety is an important emotion because 
it's designed to keep us safe. And if we didn't have anxiety, then, you know, we could get into dangerous situations. The difficulty is, though, is when we become anxious and fearful about things where there isn't actually uh, much, of a, much of a danger that we, you know, we walk into a room full of people and we, we're just worried they're going to judge us badly and think us foolish or we're going to humiliate ourselves or embarrass ourselves. It's those sorts of thoughts that are inaccurate. That's when anxiety is a problem. And the key thing, really, is to not get caught up in these thoughts so much, to in fact test them out, to not avoid these situations, but go into them and learn actually things are okay. And really often I think one of the best things to do is to to think about where we're placing our attention. If we walk into that room full of other people at a party or a social gathering and we're thinking about, oh, how am I going to come across? Are things going to go wrong? If we do that, we're all focused on the bad stuff. What we really want to do in these situations is walk into that room thinking about the opportunities and the positive stuff, about, you know, the nice people we might meet or the conversations or the things of interest. And once we've focused on our minds on what actually could go well in a situation, once we do that, we're often then just, we don't even notice the bad stuff anymore. We focus much more on the positive and are engaged. And, you know, often the times we're happiest is when we're not thinking about ourselves, but we're engaged in a conversation or in a moment or activity. That's often when we're happiest. If we can get that trick of where we focus our attention, I think that's probably the most important thing. That was British clinical psychologist and author Professor Daniel Freeman. The Stress Sex, Uncovering the Truth About Men, Women and Mental Health is published by Oxford University Press and retails for around 13 euros. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, I'm looking at money, money and more money. How we make it and how we blow it. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end tonight's show with some pressing words from Daniel Freeman from his conclusions to The Stressed Sex, where he writes, 
given the extent of the burden of society and individuals alike, understanding what causes mental illness and thus being better placed to prevent and treat it should need no justification. But our ability to do that is going to be hampered if we assume that gender is, at most, merely a marginal issue. It may often be a crucial element of the puzzle. Without gender, perhaps the pieces simply won't link up. Thought-provoking words indeed. Good night. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108.